Hi, everyone. Welcome to Better Together and As We podcast. For future reference, ASWE stands for the Alzheimer's Society of Windsor and Essex County. This podcast will feature engaging conversation with guests ranging from community leaders to care partners and persons living with dementia to raise awareness about this disease. You're listening to Better Together and As We Podcast, and this is episode 20. My name is Cindy, and I'm joined today by Rosemary Fiss. Rosemary Fiss is the Director of Programs here at the Alzheimer's Society. I'm so excited to have you here on this episode, especially because uh, January is Alzheimer Awareness Month. Thank you so much, Rosemary, for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation, Cindy. It's good to be here. So I just want to get right into it. Um, A little bit about yourself. Um, You're the director of programs here. You wear many hats. Um, You have a lot of employees um, doing many different things around you. Um, So can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, absolutely. So I, my parents were German immigrants. Uh, they came to Canada in the fifties and I grew up on a small farm outside of Leamington. Um, I earned a degree in family studies and gerontology at the university of Guelph. And then I came back to this area after I graduated and early on, I worked in home care, in long-term care, did some community development work. And then that led me here to the Alzheimer's society. How many years have you been at the Alzheimer's Society? I've been here almost 19 years. Wow. And I'm just thinking, uh, Sally just celebrated her, her 20th, 20th yes. year. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you never thought about moving back to Leamington once you were done school? I, when I was in school, I never thought I would come back here, but uh, that's just the way life happened. And I came back and I lived in Leamington for quite a long time. I came, I moved to Windsor then. Um, just because I was driving back and forth here to this office so okay all right um so here at the Alzheimer's Society you um were the title of director of programs can you tell me a little bit about that sure so um I started here in uh 2004 um and I've done many different things. As director of programs, I oversee all of our programs and services. So that includes our first link, which is our intake office, um, education support and first link care navigation, behavioral supports Ontario, our two all day programs, our in-home respite program and the wellness programs that you oversee. So it's all of the things that we provide to the community oh, and public education as well. Um, all the things that we provide to the community, uh, to clients living with dementia, their care partners, all of that falls under me. In the 19 years that you've been at the Alzheimer's Society, um, what has progressed the years with the many roles that are um, underneath you? Well, when I started here, um, it was a challenge for us to have anybody speak out about their lived experience. So to have a person living with dementia or their care partners come out and and talk about what they were going through publicly. Um, that has changed dramatically. I mean, look at how many people you've hosted already on this podcast, how many people we have come out and speak uh, about their lived experience in the community. So that's a really positive change. Um, in 2004, when I started, there was one social worker and one educator on staff. And now the, a combined team in those roles, we have 10 different people in, in, those, uh, in that capacity. Um, our adult day programs shifted from one site to four sites with an evening program to the current two sites. And there were variations across that in many different spaces. 
Um, In-home respite has certainly grown where we are uh, offering uh, 14,000 hours of service a year now. Um, we completed our first accreditation last year, which was a big milestone. <laughs> the staff certainly cheered at the end of November when we hit that one. Um, technology has changed a lot. Um, I used an overhead projector when I started as an educator in 2004, um, giving presentations. And we've moved to a projector and laptops shortly after that. And then now the last three years has been mostly virtual because of COVID and, and the restrictions. So lots of changes in that. Um, when I would record uh, who I'd given presentations to, it was largely a pen and paper process of doing that um, and tallying up those, those things on a monthly basis. We're, I don't miss that at all. Um, we're still a very paper-based organization, but we're shifting that this year with plans to move to an electronic medical record. So that's really going to make things much more efficient. Um, which is then going to enhance the services that we can provide to the community. Mm -hmm. So do you think from your perspective, the society has um, um, integrated well with how much technology has changed throughout the years? I think that we we're still behind in that. And that's, you know, reflective of being in a smaller organization, of being, um, you know, a not-for-profit and the funds that it requires to be very integrated with technology. Um, so we've, we've made small inroads. If you ask some of our staff, they've been asking for <laughs> electronic documentation for a decade. <laughs> I keep saying to them, it's coming. <laughs> um, so that has certainly taken us longer than we'd, we'd hoped for, but it's, it often comes down to the, the financial resources to be able to support it. Mm -hmm. And it takes time too. We don't want to rush into those kinds of things as well. Sure. So, Rosemary, can you just tell me how you got started into public education? Yeah, sure. Um, about 25 years ago, I was working in long-term care, and I had the opportunity to work with Len Fabiano and Ron Martin in their consulting company. Um, so I was working full-time, and I was working part-time with them. And these were two of Canada's early leaders in the field of dementia education. Um, and the training that they gave me really shaped how I see education and training. It really gave me such a strong foundation in terms of being able to offer workshops and how I, how I lead those and facilitate those workshops. Um, so I continued working with them. For, I worked with Ron for a few years um, and his company in Silver Meridian. And then when that no longer was a fit for us because of time commitments, um, I started working with Dementiability and Gail Elliott a few years after that, and as one of the facilitators of her workshops here in, in the province. Um, and that was a great experience as well. The Dementiability work is so foundational in terms of what we do and what we provide for the Alzheimer's Society. And so I really resonate with the work that she's done and, and how she puts that material together. It was through that relationship with Gail that I was able to travel to China to provide a workshop at a conference over there. And that was such an amazing experience to interact with um, that group of people. It was largely in an acute care setting and, in, um, and not so much community care, but they were trying to learn more about the community care model. And that was really what um, 
I was there to offer them some insights into how we did what we did here. And it was, it was truly amazing. So I've been, uh, you know, working with uh, those two groups throughout my career. And, and that was really gave me a, a strong basis for things. And then because of my role in public education here at the Alzheimer's Society, I have the opportunity to really um, take part in a lot of different workshops and courses, train the trainer models. So I've, I've been a coach for gentle persuasive approaches in dementia care since 2006. Um, shortly after that, I you know learned the You First model. Um, Alzheimer Ontario brought out taking control of our lives, which is another model as well. So, um, and then a few years ago, I certified as a coach with the best friends approach. And I'm one of only a handful in Ontario. So that's a, a really wonderful material as well. Um, and we were able to do some work in validation therapy here at uh, within our team. So all of those pieces kind of build on each other. Um, and in between all of that, I, I completed a, a master's degree in education at U of T. So as much as I love being in school, I also <laughs> love the opportunity that the Alzheimer's Society gives us and gives me in this role to continue to learn and to continue to try and bring best practices into how we do what we do to be able to support our team in their interactions with clients, but also to be able to bring the best possible um, material and, and new ways of doing things to our clients and our care partners. Mm -hmm. um, I would just want to um, touch base a little bit on validation therapy. Um, I did a podcast with one of our former staff members, Rose Russell, and she touched base on um, validation therapy and she um, just raves about it. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about validation therapy? Absolutely. So validation was developed by Naomi File who is a, uh, a social worker out of the US. And she's been working in this field for decades. And validation is all about responding to the person's reality, regardless of it corresponds with our here and now. So I'm responding to their emotional message as opposed to their um, the factual message. I'm, I don't want to create conflict by, um, questioning how they're seeing things, but rather I'm validating how they're feeling in the situation. And this can be tough because especially for family members or for care partners, when that person living with dementia is expressing a reality that is very different from our own, that can be a, a, a challenging uh, conversation to have. Um, but validation encourages us to really respond to the emotional message. So for example, somebody is saying, you know, I want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home, but they're actually in their own home. Reality orientation, which is another model, would teach us and tell us to say, well, you are home. You've lived in this, this is your home now. Um, you know, we sold the farm, the dog's not there anymore, you live in this place now. Like you, and we, we force the issue in terms of trying to get that person to remember. Now, realistically, if they could remember, they wouldn't be asking us to go home. So I can't reach in and change their brain, but I can change their experience by how I'm responding to it. So validation encourages us to say something like, you know, respond to the emotional message. So you really miss your home, don't you? 
or this doesn't feel like home today or tell me about your home you know what do you miss about it and have a conversation in a different way as opposed to trying to navigate through um, uh, arguing logic because we're not going to get anywhere with it so over the years um we've faced many challenges as a um, organization one of them being covid um what were some of the um challenges that um your different programs faced throughout covid um well certainly i, I think covid is probably one of the biggest challenges that i've i've had to um embrace since my time here um we closed our in-home respite and out day programs in March 2020, and then they remained closed until the fall. That was a really tough decision to make, knowing that our clients and care partners rely on those services and what a, what a huge impact they have on people's lives. Um, so we moved things virtually. We, we offered a virtual day program, which was well-received, and that just provided people with some contact. Um, and some small group time on a on a virtual setting. We provided some education. We uh, lent people out tech, you know, if they needed laptops or they needed um, tablets to be able to access that. We provided a lending program to be able to do that. So just trying to make sure that people could access us as much as they could. Um, we're still not back 100%. Our day programs are still operating at about 50% capacity because we are still operating on a uh, social distancing within those programs. So we still have some room to grow. Our in-home respite numbers are, are back to almost where we were pre-COVID. So that's a good thing. And, and there are wait lists in, in all of those programs. So we certainly have people who are still waiting to get onto service with us. Mm -hmm. The education support team and the care navigation team they're working um, above capacity so they their numbers have actually increased to what they um, were before COVID and that's largely because as we moved to a virtual model they were you know not driving out to visit people in their homes for those few months when we weren't doing virtual visits so their ability to to connect with people was greater because they have they were doing phone visits or virtual visits um, but the need has increased as well. So while our, our staff team hasn't increased in these years, we uh, our client base has certainly increased. So that's really showing itself in that team in terms of how much they have to navigate. Mm -hmm. It's It's been a wild couple of years and I feel like it's still going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Um, can we talk a little bit about environmental considerations uh, for someone living with dementia and for their care partner as well? Yeah, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. Um, you know, I, I often hear from care partners or from that person living with dementia that the days at home are long and they don't know what to do with their time. Um, and so this can be related to different reasons. There's so many different changes that can happen in the brain of the person living with dementia. And each of those changes then is gonna impact how that person experiences the world around them. So if that person living with dementia experiences apathy, they may not be able to initiate activity. There's, there's no get up and go. Um, their brain doesn't know how to actually start doing something. And that can lead to boredom. 
um, if they just sit all day and they aren't able to start doing something because their brain's start button is damaged, that day can seem really long and boring. And that boredom then can then be expressed in anger or anxiety or frustration. So if we want to support that person living with dementia, we want to find ways of offering them meaningful activities throughout their day. Um, that starts with knowing what their needs, their interests, their skills and abilities are. Um, you know, we ask ourselves, what is this person interested in doing? Or what are their past interests? Um, do they like watching hockey or baseball or another sport? Were they a good cook and they like to look through recipes? Um, maybe they were avid gardeners. Whatever it is, we start with their past and their present interests to start building on how can we create some meaning in their every day. And then I'll ask myself, what can this person do and what can they not do? You know, if there's parts of a task that they're struggling with or that they get stuck on or that um, really impacts their success. And that's where I wanna adapt the activity or the tasks so that it offers an opportunity for success. Can we pick a specific um, task and maybe break it down so that our listeners can better understand um, the steps to take? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's think about a person living with dementia who lives in their own home with their spouse. And let's say this person was always the principal homemaker. So she cooked did most of the housework, cleaning, laundry, shopping, and, and so on. And that's where her past and present interests would be. But with the dementia, she's no longer able to take the initiative to start any of those activities. So she's had an interest in doing things around the house for many years. Um, I may start by asking her if she'd like to help me make a pot of soup for lunch. Now I know that because of the dementia, even if she's been a cook for her whole life, she will not, may not have the capacity to make that soup start to finish on her own. Um, and so I wanna think about where do I need to adapt this task to be able to break it down? Um, so I've asked her, I've invited her to help. So let's now get all the supplies together. Let's get the vegetables out of the fridge. So I might go to the fridge with her and pull out the carrots and hand them to her and say, would you put these on the table? And then I pull out the next, the celery, for example, and give it to her and ask her to put it on the table. So I'm involving this person. It's gonna be, yes, it's quicker for me to do it all on my own and to be able to just finish it, but that's not the point of this. The point is to provide some meaningful engagement for this person and to allow her to be involved in a way that's meaningful to her. Um, so we've got all the vegetables out, we've got all the ingredients out on the table. Now let's start prepping them. Now again, because of the damage in the brain, she may not be able to look at the carrot and know what needs to be done to get this carrot into the soup pot. So I'm gonna initiate that for her. So would you peel this using this peeler? So I'm gonna hand her both tools so that I don't, I'm not asking her to go to the drawer and find the peeler because that may be more than she can do. I wanna offer success. So I'm gonna pull all of the tools out that we need so that she doesn't have to think about it. 
if that request causes some confusion, I'm going to offer to watch me. And I'm going to demonstrate the first one and then offer the opportunity for her to keep going. And then I keep going through that the whole time. So again, there's, I've taken this piece of making the soup and broken it down from getting all the ingredients together to then prepping the vegetables and then putting them into soup pot. Um, and each piece of it, breaking it down so that I can adapt it to what this person is able to do. And the more she does it, the better she's gonna get. So when we make this next week, she's going to be that step further because she'll will have already done it with me this week. But I'm encouraging her or I'm setting her up for success by breaking it down in that way. Um, I mean, I remember one client sharing with me that his wife who was living with dementia would follow him around the kitchen and she was getting frustrated because he was in her kitchen um, and he was trying to get things done and he was frustrated because he was having to do everything. And so I asked him why he was doing everything by himself. And his response was, well, she couldn't do it. She would get lost trying to put the dishes away or she couldn't remember how to turn on the dish, the washing machine. And so I suggested to him, he invite her in to help, just like we've described here with this soup. Mm -hmm. um, if they were washing dishes, he could wash the plate and hand it to her, let her dry it and set it on the counter. And then when they were all done, he could put the dishes away. But now she's going to be engaged and she is part of the whole process. Um, and he came back in a, in a couple of weeks and told me how well things were going. Um, she was less angry with him and he was less frustrated because, you know, there was less of that emotion happening in the house and now they're working together on getting things done. Herb, what are some tips for the care partner then, um, just from hearing that scenario? Some tips for care partners. Um, I think the biggest tip is always to call us. <laughs> um, if you're not in, involved with, the, with your local Alzheimer's Society, that's one of the first steps to take because there are so many resources that we can offer um, to be able to support that person, both the care partner as well as the, the person living with dementia. I think um, in terms of looking for meaningful activity is remembering that this it's this damage in this person's brain that is creating these changes and the person isn't looking at the world in the same way anymore and so in whatever we set up whatever task we ask them to do i want to think about process not product it's about having that person be engaged it doesn't matter if it's perfect at the end of it um, you know, when we're making this pot of soup, does it matter if every piece of peel gets off of that carrot? No, What's, what matters is that that person finds some meaning in something that they're doing, mm -hmm. they to do that. So that's a, a really big thing. And for care partners as well, knowing when to take a break um, for themselves. You know, it's, it's uh, both people need a break, I think, in that space and being able to step away from that. Those are all great. Um, what are specific things that um, can be placed into the person's home so that they can safely navigate throughout their, um, their environment um, and so that they um, feel confident in being independent as well? Well, I think, um, you know, that's a, a environmental 
pieces are so important. The further progressed a person is in their dementia, the more the environment's gonna impact their behaviors. So we really wanna take a step back and look at the environment and, and what can we do to support this person within that? And a, a lot of that, I mean, I know that you do a lot of work in that region with your dementia-friendly communities work, um, but we're thinking about what the individual person needs. Sometimes a deficit that will occur with a dementia is a disorientation to space. So even though that person has been living in this home for many years, they may get confused or disoriented. So something that can be helpful is to add labels or directional signs in the house. Um, and that may feel really odd for the care partner or for the family that's there, because you think this person's lived here for years, they should know. But because of the damage in their brain, they may not remember how to navigate within that space. So, you know, we go through this ourselves. If we're you know, in a, in a strange environment, like, you know, an airport. We navigate our way to the gate that we need by looking for signs. So I want to do the same thing for that person living with dementia, in, even though it's their own home. I wanna give them signs so that they can navigate their space. Um, so if they're sitting on their bed, can they see the toilet from their bed? And usually not. But if they can't see the toilet, can they see the washroom door from their bed? And what tells them that it's a washroom door? You know, if I look in, in most spaces, every hallway door looks the same. Every closet door looks the same. And it's our memory that differentiates the bedroom door from the guest room from the washroom. So if the memory is damaged, that tells me what's behind each of those doors, then it can be really confusing to navigate. So I wanna be able to make it more successful and easier for that person. Um, so think about putting a sign up on the door in the words or a picture that makes sense to that person. Um, it's a really simple fix to help that person remain independent, but it also increases safety so much. Um, I remember, a. a someone that I know telling me that her husband had gotten up in the middle of the night, used the washroom, walked out the wrong door of the washroom and ended up outside of the house in January, middle of the night, sub-zero weather, and then couldn't find his way back in. And so that happened so quickly and he was out there for a few minutes until he was able to alert her that he needed some help. But it was the dementia that created that situation. He, he, he got turned around in his own bathroom by walking out the wrong door. Um, and that can happen so quickly. So I wanna think about what are ways that we can create some uh, safety situations as well in people's homes, but let's make it easier for them to navigate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes safety over um, aesthetic is the way to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, other things that we can think about too, sometimes another deficit that can occur in dementia is altered perception, where the brain misinterprets what is seen or what's heard. And this can also lead to a loss of color perception, where if two things are of similar or light color, they won't be differentiated between them. Um, so for example, washrooms are, are a great um, example of this. 
The typical washroom has a light colored floor, a white toilet, a white tub, white sink, light colored walls. And for that person who has a lack of color perception, they're gonna walk into a marshmallow because everything is the same color and they, they lose the ability to differentiate where one thing is um, versus the other. Um, so thinking about how can I create some color contrast in this space? And it doesn't mean that white is bad, but it's about creating that, that color differentiation. So even if I have you know, my, my white piece of paper here, if I put something of contrast to it, I'm gonna see the two things much more clearly. Mm -hmm. um, or within our organization, we use name tags that do that too. So all of our, that's a little bit glare on that. All of our name tags are these really simple black print on yellow background. Um, so that they're easier for that person living with dementia to read. And it's based on that, that concept. Um, so even just putting a, you know, a color toilet seat on the toilet can be helpful or putting um, something of, of color on the bottom of the tub so that there's some contrast that can help that person see where the, where the tub is. You know, in the dining room, you think about a beautiful white tablecloth and the best china, which is white, and today's meal of chicken and mashed potatoes. And for that person who lacks color perception, um, they can't see any of it. So and maybe they're not eating, not because they're not hungry, but because they can't find any of the food on the plate in front of them because everything is um, blending together. So it's not an eyesight issue, but it's more about the damage in their brain. So even just putting like this example, let's put a colored placemat underneath of it. And now the white plate will stand out on it. Simple things like that can make a huge difference, eh? Mm -hmm. Such a big difference. Love that. Um, so how are needs and history important to factor in? Um, why do they coincide with one another? Well, I think just like you and I, we have, if I, you know, have an interest, I'm going to be more likely to be engaged in it. And so I want to think about what does this person like to do or what have they previously liked to do in their past life? Someone who maybe was an avid skier when they were 30, now with a dementia is still going to have an interest in skiing. They may not physically be able to do that, but there's still going to be an interest there. And so I want to think about knowing who that person is. If, if you know one person with dementia, you know just that one person with dementia. No two people are exactly alike. They don't experience the disease in the same way, but we're all individuals as well. So I want to think about what does this individual person like to do or what do they have an interest in doing and who is this person um, and think about that. From our conversation about having um, environmental considerations for the person living with um, dementia, are there other things that you find can be helpful for the person living with dementia and their care partner to make everything run more smoothly in their side their household? Yeah, I think about um, you know, the environmental design can, can continue to go. There's lots of different things that we can do. And that's really looking at the individual house and what are some things that we can navigate to make things simpler here. Um, I think about task breakdown, you know, maybe that person can physically still 
make coffee, but they get lost in the steps. So even just putting up a sign beside the coffee maker that tells them how to use the coffee maker. Now they can be independent and still do it, but they just need to follow the steps because the, the ability to follow those steps, that's a brain thing, to be able to put things in the right order. I really like using um, calendars as well and daily reminders, agendas. Um, we do this ourselves. I have a calendar that has my daily tasks in it. It's kind of how I organize my work day and my life outside of work. But that person living with dementia needs that same support sometimes too. So even just getting a calendar that lets them know what's happening today or what's going on can be really supportive. Mm -hmm. In our day programs, um, we do have a room that's designated as like a quiet room. Why is that so important for our clients that attend day programs? Yeah, we, we try to create those quiet spaces whenever we, we can. Um, it takes a lot of energy for this brain that's damaged to navigate through this world because at times everything that for you and I just seems normal and every day can take some extra um, energy for them to understand. And like I said, the further progressed a person is, the more the environment impacts their behaviors. And the environment includes other people and lights and sounds. And sometimes that day program can have a lot of fun and the noise escalates. And for somebody maybe needing to take a step back and just have a little bit of quiet time. So we try to en encourage people to do that um, if they're needing to step away from the space a little bit. I know that one person living with dementia who speaks out a lot about her, her own journey has said that she has a quiet room in each of her kids' houses. So that when she goes to visit and if there's too much activity going on, she knows she can go to this space and just retreat for a little while and have some quiet time for herself. And when she's ready to re-enter into things, then she can do that. Mm -hmm. I think a part of that too is having open communication with family and friends so that everybody's on the same page as well. The name of our podcast is Better Together. From your perspective, what does that mean to you? I think the, the podcast name fits in so well with our awareness campaign, um, where we're thinking about, you know, that connection to community. And a, a diagnosis with dementia is never easy. But making those connections to community support makes such a huge difference. And that's one message that we always want to share that we're here to help support people. We want to, um, you know, answer any questions that they have. We want to link them up with supports and services that are either here within our organization or in the community. And that's really what um, the First Link program is about as well as being that first connection. And I see the podcast name really reflecting all of that as well. Thank you so much, Rosemary, for taking the time out of your day to do this podcast with me. Um, but I would love for us to finish with uh, some rapid fire questions. These five questions are all random um, and it will allow our audience to get to know a little bit about Rosemary. Um, can you answer these questions in one word or one sentence? Oh, that'll be tough. <laughs> There are no yes. wrong answers. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So question number one, if you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with that extra time? I would probably knit or crochet. 
All right. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Pizza. What's your favorite toppings? <laughs> I don't have one favorite. That's why I would choose pizza because it's different every time. <laughs> All right. What would your perfect Sunday look like? I'm an equally an introvert and an extrovert. So perfect could be two different things. I love time spent with family or friends, sharing food and maybe some wine, but equally it would be perfect with a good book and quiet. I like those. Those are two perfect Sundays for me too. Um, what could you give a 40 minute presentation on with absolutely no preparation? Uh, dementia. And what's the best piece of advice someone has ever given you? Um, a, a friend and mentor often reminds me to be where my feet are. It's her way of, of saying, stay present. Don't focus on the past or the future, but be where your feet are. And oh. I often come back to that. Oh, I really like that. I've never heard that before. Mm -hmm. Can you say it one more time? <laughs> be where your feet are. Be where your feet are. Wow. That's a great way to end the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Rosemary. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. I hope our listeners have learned a little bit more about environmental considerations and activity ideas for people living with dementia and their care partners. Hey, listeners, my call to action for all of you. How can you help? Educate yourself and encourage others to do the same. Refer your circle of friends and family to our services. Support our events and fundraising campaigns. Become a dementia-friendly community and let's keep talking about dementia. Listen to new episodes on the last Friday of every month on our YouTube channel, Alzheimer Windsor. Don't forget to subscribe. Our podcast is also available on Spotify and Amazon Music. Help for today, hope for tomorrow, and remember, we are better together. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Thanks, Cindy.